Welcome to the Med Faber Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Matt Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. Welcome, my friends. We got an awesome show for you today. Our guest is Kate Moore, BlackRock's head of thematic strategy and a member of BlackRock's global allocation investment team. In today's episode, Kate shares her framework for looking at markets from the perspective of a macro equity investor. Then she shares her view of global markets and what key investable themes she's focused on today. We touch on changing consumer habits, natural resources, and automation. This episode is sponsored by our friends at YCharts. A typical day in the life of a financial advisor calls for back-to-back client meetings, juggling portfolio management, and the consistent desire to improve client relationships. YCharts report and proposal tools could be the missing piece to help you effectively handle these time-consuming tasks. Now more than ever, clients want to hear from their advisors and with user-friendly templates at your disposal, generating impactful client reports can be easily integrated into your everyday routine, helping you free up time and focus on what matters most, enhancing client interactions and growing AUM. Need to make a clear head-to-head comparison between a client's existing portfolio and your proposed one? Want a seamless way to educate your client and present market trends with minimal effort? Join thousands of users who rely on YCharts to easily answer those questions and much more by leveraging personalized proposal reports to truly showcase your value add. Click the link in the show notes to learn what others are saying about YCharts' comprehensive suite of reporting and proposal generation tools. Get 20% off your initial YCharts professional subscription when you start your free YCharts trial. Click the link in the show notes or tell them Meb sent you for new customers only. Please enjoy this episode with Black Rocks, Kate Moore. Kate, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks, Meb. Psyched to be talking to you today. For the listeners, not watchers, you can see a little uh, snow in the background. Where do we find you today? Yeah, I'm, I'm broadcasting live here from Jackson Hole, which is, as far as I'm concerned, the best place in the country. You know, um, I've been to Jackson multiple times and I'm kind of a jinx when it comes to Jackson and snow. I I think uh, I've, for whatever reason, have timed it somewhat poorly every time we've been there. And the last conference, last thing I ever did pre-COVID was investment conference in Jackson. I think everyone went home sick. It was the last week of February 2020 or first week of March, I think. Um, Magical place, though. How long have you been frequenting there? You're not from there, are you? I didn't grow up here. I grew up in the East Coast in New England, kind of Vermont and Connecticut. But my first trip out to Jackson was in 1993. I was hiking or doing a big backpacking trip on the Lewis and Clark Trail. And we stopped here for a couple of days kind of to regroup. I think they wanted us to shower, to be honest. And um, I fell in love with this location and the Snake River and uh, then started coming out here very regularly over the last 30 years. Finally bought my house almost five years ago. Very cool. Let's talk markets. You're a fellow Wahoo. What was your origin story? Did you you didn't start out in markets, didn't you? You were you were a political undergrad. What'd you study? Yeah, I was in a special program at the University of Virginia called Political and Social Thought. Since I have a bunch of PST friends from other classes before and after me, I can say that 
it's a pretty nerdy group. It tends to be a really small group of people, 20 to 25 people. And we get to study some pretty incredible stuff through seminars and then also uh, take a bunch of graduate level classes. Um, but political and social thought can be what you want it to be. I was really into political theory, political philosophy, and I got more into political economy as I went on through my studies. And that's really how I started getting into markets. You know, after UVA, I worked in consulting for a spinoff of McKinsey for a couple of years. And while it was a great experience, I knew pretty soon after starting that I didn't want to be a consultant for life. So it was a pretty tough lifestyle. And, and I was thinking to myself, like, what do I love? Like, what am I good at? What do I want to do? And I love academics. My mom is an academic. I love research. I had all of this sort of vision of myself that was like, I'm going to be a professor. I'm going to write some books and I'm going to spend all summer climbing while I do research. And so I ended up applying for my PhD programs uh, and I went to the University of Chicago. I did not finish my PhD. Turns out I was a capitalist and was anxious to get back to making money. But there I uh, also did political economy. And so what was the first stint after that? Yeah. So at University of Virginia, I had sort of stumbled onto my first year studying Mandarin. And I was fluent in Spanish from an early age. And so I thought it'd be fun to take Chinese when I was at UVA. And actually, the study of the language got me really interested in Chinese political thought and Chinese culture. So I ended up taking these cool classes on China. And when I went to grad school, you know, my focus was really on emerging market capital development and also uh, really understanding China even better. And I used my Mandarin skills and stuff like that to do a bunch of research. So I was really interested in the developing world and development models that looked really different from the US or from Western Europe. And so I had this idea that when I finished Chicago, when I finished my master's, that I was going to work at a think tank or an NGO, you know, do something really nerdy. And shortly after, this is kind of a fun story, I was uh, waiting for my master's thesis to be graded and before I could walk. So I had maybe like a month or something. And I decided I was going to go to Costa Rica to surf camp because I did not know how to surf. And that seemed like a logical thing to try and learn. Right. So I was down there and I came back and I got this. I was like all sort of blissed out. Vida. I got this call from University of Chicago and they basically said, hey, Kate, we have an inbound request from the chief investment officer of Morgan Stanley Investment Management. And they're looking for someone with a policy, kind of politics, history, economics background, not an MBA. And I said, hey, guys, you know, I've thought a lot about this. I really want to go the NGO route. And they said, can you just do us the favor of going on the interview? So we've put up a good candidate. And I went in and met this macro team at Morgan Stanley. And they were so thoughtful. I loved that they were approaching problems from a multitude of different perspectives from history and philosophy, you know, economics, understanding of the world. And it was really my introduction to macro investing. I fell in love with it. I think I accepted my offer two weeks later. What's the general framework or the lens from which you kind of view the world? And then we can kind of dial into various parts of what's happening uh, today in 2023. Yeah. So I call myself a macro equity investor. And so in practice, I think that means a lot of the equity investors are dedicated 
fundamental model building, bottoms up type analysts think I'm very macro. And then the true macro investors think I'm very equity. It's an interesting place to bridge and actually has proven to be incredibly useful throughout the course of my almost 25-year career at this point. Sometimes I worried that I wasn't specialized enough in one thing, either being macro or being bottoms up. But the truth of the matter is I do invest across other asset classes as well if the equity expression doesn't make a lot of sense. But if you go back over the last 25 years, the S&P has returned something like 460% over that period of time. Okay, so a huge amount, especially if you kind of got and stayed invested. But if you take out the FOMC days from your data set and then like the day before, you know, maybe that's like 430 days, I think, out of like 6,500 possible days, the S&P would be trading like sub 2000, like 55% lower than it is today in February of 2023, the macro has really moved the market. And it's really important, I think, when I tell this to young people as they're starting off in their careers and if they're, you know, have aspirations of being like an investor for their lifetime, that you can't stay too, too specialized. You have to be able to understand the macro. You have to be under, understand geopolitics, policy headwinds, policy tailwinds. You have to understand positioning and sentiment. This is not just about modeling a company's cash flows. So let's start to dig in a little bit from this broad sort of macro equity framework. What's it mean for the world today? How is it? Uh, we can maybe go through case studies or just kind of just talk about it generally, but how does that framework apply to Uh, What's going on now? So I always start with the macro, frankly. I think if you don't have a great sense for growth and policy, inflation, it's pretty hard to figure out where the fast rivers are going to be and where you're going to see the best potential growth. So I start there. And then I also think about where there are interesting changes in markets. We can talk about like some of my thematic views uh, in a moment. And then I spend a lot of time, frankly, a huge amount of time on positioning and sentiment. I mean, this is an area that you can really, really lose your shirt on if you're if you're not aware. And I like to say it's important to know not just what people are saying, but also how they're positioned and then how they think other people are positioned. That's going to really impact their trading and their allocations in the near term. You know, valuation is part of my process, but you might note I'm like listing this number four. It is part, but not the starting point of my process, in part because valuations can run hot or run cold for extended periods of time. You know, we, we've done a bunch of analysis and um, this made people uncomfortable at one point when I put it out there to my BlackRock colleagues. But, you know, in holding periods kind of less than three years, even in a market like the U.S., which is we have great history and great depth, valuation explains very little of your return over that period. That's because stuff can stay expensive or stay cheap, you know, for years at a time. If you have a, you know, investment framework that holds for 10 years or seven to 10 years or more, valuation has historically predicted more of your returns, but not always. And I think we need to be conscious of multiples, but we also need to be conscious of really what's going on in the macro and what's going on in positioning and sentiment first. What does the world look like today? It's been a weird couple of years since last time I was in Jackson. 
I personally feel like I've seen some of these market styles in my my short career, even historically, it, it's looked a little different. Um, talk to us. What's uh, what's going on? Yeah, the market does look really different. But I would actually argue, Meb, that it's pretty exciting right now. This is actually a really interesting time in the market. You know, there was a, a long period of time that the entire period of quantitative easing and like extraordinarily accommodative monetary policy and anemic, but still positive economic growth, where frankly, it was a set it and forget it strategy. You saw index outperform active decisions you know, on a regular basis. People tried to get too cute with the market or tried to time things. I actually think the macro regime here has changed in a great way, not just because policy rates are meaningfully higher and we're living with a higher inflationary you know, environment, but also because you know, there's greater differentiation and dispersion within the market than there has been in a long time. Last year, we all know the story. It was a massive washout in terms of risk. We had a huge amount of derating from cyclical growth, pardon me, secular growth companies as policy rates adjusted higher. But even this year where, you know, the S&P is up close to 8% for the year, you know, global equities are up like over 8%. There's a huge amount of activity and dispersion below the surface. And I think that's going to be the regime for the next couple of years. We may see more dispersion in terms of monetary policy decisions as well. So the, the macro environment on the ground in different markets is going to change. We're going to see, I think, companies that have invested well in technology. They are thoughtful around cost controls, uh, particularly in a rising inflation or sustained high inflation environment outperform their peers that have been really flat-footed when it comes to those decisions. And, you know, I think we're going to see great competition between the asset classes, which also means you have to be super high quality growth to outperform. I know you had my boss and um, partner on Rick Reader, uh, I think maybe six months ago or something. And Rick and I have this conversation every day because there are many more attractive investments in fixed income than there had been for a number of years. So the bar for equities is higher, but that's also exciting because it makes us do a little bit more work. I think we have to be more tactical in this environment and we really have to separate the wheat from the chaff. All right. So there was a lot we can dig into there. You know, I think the big topic for most investors coming into this year was obviously a lot of assets being down last year, 60-40 bond stocks sort of having the dual downdraft. But really the discussion uh, was pretty heavy on inflation and interest rates coming up pretty dramatically and how that might affect the world. Is that something you guys like at this point? Is It, it feels like the consensus is that inflation is, is moderating. I think last I saw some of the expectations were down to 2-3% within a year, which seems pretty astonishing in the U.S., maybe not elsewhere, but within the U.S. But does the environment from 2022, as you mentioned, this this pretty quick, either a bounce or new bull market, I don't know which, but one of them or both, what's sort of the prevailing thoughts on the extension of kind of this inflationary rising bond yield environment? Is it y'all's view that it's going to kind of settle down or is it higher for longer? What's What's the general thoughts? Yeah, I mean, we, we debate inflation and all the components of inflation a lot across the BlackRock uh, macro and also taking in some of the, the micro views as well. You know, I think there is 
this very black and white, sometimes binary view in the market. If someone says, for example, I think we're going to have more of a disinflationary environment over the course of 2023. Disinflationary means still rising prices, but at a lower rate. People will say that's not necessarily true or it's universally true. And I think we have to understand that this disinflation trend over the course of 2023 is not going to be linear. We're going to have bounces in higher prices in specific segments of the economy or the market. And we are going to see others decline more rapidly. And then they may reverse course over, over a period of months. Just because we're starting to see some disinflation does not mean that all prices universally everywhere will fall in lockstep. And I think as we take in more data, that could kind of challenge the narrative that inflation is coming down. But we need to think through one data print and kind of look over a two to three month or a three to six month horizon. In that case, you know, amongst my team and and across our platform, we feel pretty confident that there will be persistent disinflationary movements. Will we get down to two to three percent? I think that's maybe overly optimistic uh, in 2023. I think we need to accept that inflation will likely remain higher than it was certainly in the pre-pandemic period or in that kind of pre-pandemic decade. So getting used to more price pressure, particularly when it comes to wages and particularly driven by what we think is going to be persistent tightness in the labor market is going to be really important, not just for analyzing the macro and thinking about what policy is, but also in trying to figure out which companies can maintain their margins? How are they controlling their labor costs? What are they doing to invest in efficiencies to kind of reduce their total cost of an employee? Yeah, well, if ski town in the U.S. inflation is any guide, lift tickets, and more importantly, cost of ski instructors. I have a five-year-old, so this is very near and dear to my heart. I want to start like a, a platform that connects the local bro bras that are great skiers with uh, kids because man it's it's pricey it's japan so was pricey. japan was cheaper um but that's part of it may just be the the yen being at sort of generational lows all right so let's dig into some of your themes uh you're big on themes i'll let you choose but one of your first that we saw you talking a little bit about here and there is uh, disrupting the consumer what does that mean okay well let me just step back a minute man but i'm kind of talk to you about my thematic framework because There are a lot of people who claim to be thematic investors right now, and everyone is a slightly different flavor. So let me share kind of how I approach this, which is I think about thematic investing in three buckets, right? There's the first bucket that you may see represented in, say, a thematic ETF. That is the slow bleed, incremental change in some behavior uh, or the slow adoption of a technology, something that will play out over a number of years. That is a totally valid way to invest thematically. But you just have to kind of hold these ideas and these themes for longer periods of time. There's a second bucket, which is more around disruptive change, like a significant change in policy, the introduction of a technology, a change in geopolitical relationships that lead to a a set of companies benefiting disproportionately from some catalyst or not. I mean, it's also on the short side as well, but I would call that more disruptive change. And it doesn't mean it all has to take place in the course of a week, but it's not this like five to 10 year, hey, incremental change that I'm talking about in bucket one. And then there is, you know, bucket three, 
which is around macro themes. And this is going to be around business cycle stuff, policy decisions on the monetary side, and you know, significant shifts in terms of asset allocation. I would say I spend all my time on buckets two and three. You know, where is there disruptive change and where does the macro play out thematically in the equity market? All right. Well, let's hear about it. Okay. So on the consumer side, I mean, this is something we think about a lot. Where are consumer preferences changing and where are they being forced to change? The easiest and like most straightforward example that we all knew was that a shift to e-commerce was happening for many years pre-pandemic that was falling into bucket one, incrementally more spend happening with online retailers. And then, of course, the pandemic accelerated uh, and significantly led to a step change that fell into bucket two. So sometimes these themes can bridge these different buckets. But we are seeing a, a significant preference change for consumers in terms of how they spend their money, You know what they upweight. This is not just a goods versus services, but it is also like, what is the status object that allows me to broadcast to my social media followers? And so you're just seeing consumers change their preferences and how they spend. Again, that doesn't mean anti-goods, but it means a very specific type of goods. And they tend to be more price sensitive in you know commoditized goods and more specific around, say, luxury brands, for example. So there's opportunity there. But we can also take consumer preferences one step further, which is to say, you know, what do they want when it comes to their big durable purchases? Does energy efficiency matter? Does it matter more in the U.S. than Europe? Probably not at this point. But it also matters, I'd say, like for European consumers that not only do these goods, especially like white goods and appliances and stuff like that, meet regulations, but also there's a bit of a competition to be greener. So there's an opportunity to invest across the consumer in a more nuanced way based on each region, not just based on policy, but also based on, you know, society. How does that sort of theme get investable? Like, where do you then take sort of these ideas, which are pretty broad and sweeping, and then start to dial that down into actual, all right, do you approach it as buckets of securities? Do you approach it as individual? What's next? Yeah, let me give you an example of a specific theme and how I thought to implement it without giving you all my positions. <laughs> but for a considerable period of time, we've been talking about the transition to EVs. There was a, a slow bleed part of that. And then there was more policy catalyst driven uh, transition to electronic electric vehicles uh, in China and in Europe. And, you know, we took a good look at this. And I started investing in it in early September of 2020. So some time ago now, it's been one of my longest held uh, themes in the portfolio at the time. And I said, I'm never going to pick the car that everyone loves. I can't pick the OEM that is going to outperform because there's going to be a lot of competition there. But instead, um, I went up the supply chain and I went up all the way. So early on, I was investing in lithium in front of that, and then the battery makers on a global basis, and then the chips that specifically go into the EVs. And I chose not to invest at all in the OEMs or even the dedicated EV car makers. And the way that looks is then I, I end up with a basket. It's usually five to eight securities where I'm taking some concentrated idiosyncratic risk, but also diversifying across an idea. 
I also recognize I may not be able to choose the winner, especially in these kind of second bucket of themes where there's big discontinuous change. And it may make sense to buy the two best names and let them fight it out. Because if the pie is growing in an enormous and rapid way, they're both going to win. And so I will approach it, you know, kind of investing this way, which is come up with the idea, do deep dives in terms of the research, figure out who the number you know, kind of one, two, three players are in each parts of the supply chain, and then construct based on liquidity, market cap, uh, positioning, and, you know, some of our kind of uh, more qualitative assessments of corporate teams. How often do you have to sort of revisit these ideas? So you say, okay, I've identified this bucket. Do you set sort of a time horizon for this investment? And then how do you kind of updated on either, hey, it's worked out, these have run too far, or this is something that maybe the the macro picture has changed? Like, how, how do you approach altering your views, both either positive or negative on sort of this kind of implementation? Yeah, it's an iterative process, Mab. I mean, there are some themes I put on in the portfolio, and I thought to myself, okay, this is a six to nine month theme. I expect these catalysts to play out in earnings, and people will position into these names over that period, and then I'm going to get out. But then there's maybe a series of positive catalysts, and that's what I would say for this EV theme I'm mentioning. It wasn't just sort of policy in China and Europe increasing you know, demand for electric vehicles, but also consistent supply constraints on the lithium side. And then the U.S. joined the party. And so we're constantly reviewing the macro policy and also micro catalysts for each of of the names in the basket. And then we'll we will change and update and edit the weights on a regular basis. There's another um, software basket I've had on for a pretty long period of time on my longer standing trades. And that's around cybersecurity. And this theme I put on in January of 2020 was pretty excited, frankly, uh, about this theme. And of course, then the pandemic hit and the need for better security software for companies all over the world, you know, exploded. So within that theme, though, we have upweighted and downweighted different names based on which segments they play in, what releases of software they've had, uh, channel checks we've gotten. So it hasn't been a set it and forget it theme where I just bought five or six names and said, hey, I like this idea over the medium term. It is a actively managed tight group of names. What could be like the longest running theme? Is there something where like, you know, I'm going to put on a position and it's lasted five, 10 years, or is it usually just like, you know, a few years in. And how many of these traditionally are you kind of tracking up in the air that you're positive on at sort of any one time? Yeah, I would love to say I have 15 different themes on, but the truth of the matter is my personal bandwidth is more like five themes and maybe two of those are macro and then three of those are kind of more micro or specific industry or policy related. I've never held a theme for five years. I won't say it's impossible. It could be the same theme name with a lot of different constituents over that period. So let's say that's a real possibility. But holding the same set of names seems really unlikely because these companies are going to move in fits and starts. There's going to be a lot of you know specific and idiosyncratic issues with each of the different companies. And I'm going to have to you know pay close attention to that. But you asked the question when you started, Meb, around valuation. I think this is really important because a number of the themes that I invest in would be characterized as more growth themes. 
you know, they are higher octane, higher energy, higher multiple themes in general. And in some conversations I've had with fundamental analysts, both within BlackRock and outside, you know, they've gotten a little bit itchy and said, yeah, these things are trading at the top end of the range. And I said, yeah, but this is a discontinuous change, either in this technology or demand or support for this idea. So, you know, they can blow through whatever their historic range of multiple was and actually maybe grow into that multiple as people realize the earnings and sales power. I was going to say, as a trend follower, you know, in, in a lot of our momentum work, if somebody comes to me and says something's trading at the top end of the range, I say, good, <laughs> that's a good thing. We did a paper in the pandemic, which I think is probably our least read paper. I can't even remember the titles. So few people read it, but it was like, is investing at all time highs a good idea. No, it's a great idea. But it's basically talking about thinking in terms of, of trend and momentum. But but historically, it's a much better idea on a pure price basis than investing in things that are uh, going down or near the lows. Valuation agnostic. All right. Well, that's one. You're, you you mentioned you always have a few things. Let's talk about another one. Anything? Uh, we'll let you pick and choose. I know I know what's in the quiver, but uh, we'll let you pick one. What uh, what other themes are you kicking around? All right. Well. Let's talk about global resources. How about that? Global resources. And the reason why I I want to talk about resources, this has actually been an area that I've done work on my entire career. You may have seen in the first half of my career, I was kind of dedicated to emerging markets. And during that time, emerging market equities were pretty much banks and resources if you wanted any liquidity. So uh, I spent a lot of time learning those two areas. But resources is something after a number of years where I had probably had less allocation, we really revisited, not just because of the pandemic, but because we have experienced something that in the 20 years previous, it felt like we had never seen, which was a massive amount of supply discipline and capital discipline from these companies. That's originally what kind of flagged this for me. Not an economic rebound in and of itself, although that was a positive icing on this cake, but really like a a strong and consistent fundamental shift in how these companies were being managed. And so got excited about looking at some of the diversified miners and originally put some of that on, to be honest, a little early. And it was a time where people weren't really interested for either ESG reasons or because they were focused on more reopening trades. They didn't take a good look at some of the, the miners and the natural resource companies. And then, you know, we started to see these results really play out and really raise some flags for a lot of investors. I have changed what's in that global resources bucket a, a large number of times over the a, a large number of times over the last couple of years. So originally it was kind of diversified miners. Actually, at the time of Russia's invasion of the Ukraine, I increased my uh, exposure to aluminum. We know the energy costs were going up, and this is this started, of course, with oil prices rising. Uh, in the fall of 2021, but was accelerated, frankly, by concerns around overall aluminum supply. So buying a bunch of you know aluminum producers that weren't just nat gas dependent uh, was quite helpful. I have you know overweighted some resources more recently as the Chinese economy has restarted, acknowledging that we're not going to have the big building and construction boom that we have seen in other economic accelerations in China, but that we're moving off of a pretty depressed level. So there's been a ton of rotation uh, within a theme like that. And I use options pretty aggressively as well, not just to get exposure to single names, but you know to take in a little bit of 
income on some of the names that have run well? The, uh, the resources, you know, I mean, one of the challenges we talk a lot to investors about is we say it about asset classes, but I think it applies even more to sectors and industries. I say, you know, it's important, but hard for many to be asset class agnostic. And this applies to sector, being sector agnostic. So many people, you know, I'm a tech bro. I'm a gold mining bug. I'm a whatever. You don't find many, I mean, maybe some utility people in the retirement space. I don't know, but some of these sectors and people become very attached to certain sectors because as we've seen, I mean, a great example over time has been tech versus energy and market caps and just these regimes that last a very long time. And as a quant, it's always curious to, to me to see kind of what washes in and out of portfolios. And you mentioned, I think an important point is that different geographies and development levels have different market cap kind of steady state sector exposures. And so emerging markets, you mentioned historically, has certain exposures, but that changes over time too. Part of it changes because of price and part of it changes just because of opportunity set. But the odd times when value and momentum and trend tend to overlap are my favorite. And we've certainly seen over the past year a number, like you mentioned last year in particular, natural resources doing really well, as well as materials and others. How do you approach this from, I think a lot of investors really are obviously US focused. How do you approach this from a global standpoint? You mentioned emerging markets and and your early part of your career. Is that your starting point? Yeah, I do look globally on any of these themes. If something, if I've got a little bee in my bonnet or we're doing a bunch of research on an idea, we cast a pretty wide net. I will say that liquidity and market cap are a consideration. There's some awesome companies I found that are like sub 2 billion market cap and for the size of our fund is just not really investable for us because we do want to be able to get in and out. So global with a liquidity and market cap consideration. And then we spend a whole bunch of time learning about the companies and trying to marry what we know about the top-down theme with what these companies are doing. I mentioned you know, management team matters. We really like to talk to them when we can. Unlike sometimes fundamental analysts who like interrogate management teams on line items, you know, in their financials, we really want to get a sense for strategy and vision and, you know, their assessment of competitive landscape and where they might have partnerships. That's the kind of question I ask when I speak with companies because I'm trying to get big picture ideas. And then I, you know, take some time looking at their financials, but again, not spending time modeling a lot on on the individual name. But, you know, that's a huge screening criteria. And then I would also say it's really important to understand positioning and sentiment. I mean, I can't underscore this enough. It's such a huge part of my process because I may have done all this work, but it might be already in the price because the rest of the market has already figured this out. They are already invested in it. And I have to decide, okay, if current state is in the price, am I convicted enough in future state to say I need to increase my allocation there? So you have to understand how people are talking about an idea, how they're positioned, and how they think everyone else is positioned in order to really accurately and and effectively size that theme in a portfolio. Sentiment is, I think, notoriously squishy for a lot of people. And as we know, with sentiment in 2021 certainly is is a great use case with the meme stocks and everything going bananas. How do you think about sentiment? I mean, there's the magazine covers, chatting with your friends on the lifts. Uh, are people talking about AMC or cryptos? Are there any sort of 
specific quantitative measures you look at, or is it more just sort of anecdotal and survey-based? How do you think about it? Yeah, you're right. It's squishy. And it's why I like to play in the sentiment and positioning space, because there is no perfect science to analyzing sentiment. So you have to take a really like kind of a mosaic approach, looking at some real hard data, soft data like surveys, and then, you know, heavily leveraging your network to get a sense for what different trading desks are seeing. So examples I would use, this is something I pay very close attention to actually are CFO surveys that help me understand sentiments, you know, not just broadly around the economy, around their own business, and then segmenting that uh, based on the industry that they're in. Has sentiment changed around their assessment of the business relative to the economy over, you know, number of months or number of quarters? Should I be paying attention to that? What is that telling? And I say this because, you know, some of our quantitative teams turned me on to this a number of years ago, but apparently you're supposed to pay closer attention to CFOs than to CEOs. CEOs tend to be more visionary and strategic thinkers and maybe more kind of excited about the future. CFOs tend to be more grounded in what's happening in terms of the real numbers. So the CFO surveys are something I'll pay attention to. You know, there are investor positioning uh, surveys. A number of the sell side firms, as you know, do this, but they tend to be aspirational. Like they can say, are you overweight European banks right now? Of course, everyone wants to say, yes, I'm overweight European banks because they have ripped this year, but they're not testing that against your benchmark and they're not making you prove that you actually are overweight. And they don't tend to show the magnitude of your positioning in any of those surveys. So I say like that's a useful because kind of signal, it tells you where people want to be, not necessarily where they are. And it may, in fact, be a little bit of an indicator um, of where people, people may put incremental money. And then there's a lot of other data that we like to look at, too, which is, you know, looking at fund flows, institutional and retail fund flows across a variety of index instruments, ETPs, as well as, you know, active funds, when you see significant inflows into active funds, like this big allocation into international, like ex-US equities this year, that tends to be stickier money than some of the ETP uh, flows. So we, we watch that. And then again, as I said, I heavily leverage my network on the street and ask a lot of questions of traders and derivatives experts. You know, what are you seeing with the flow? Anything coming out of the chats and, you know, looking around, talking to people? I would say that sentiment was despondent in the real money community in the fourth quarter. Uh, It was despondent, but you felt like you were in good company. Plenty of people who were much smarter than I am also felt terrible about themselves uh, in terms of their performance. And we were all universally experiencing outflows. So after you know a couple of years of positive flows and, and a lot of alpha, we had this catastrophic year. It didn't feel great, but no one felt great, and everyone was experiencing similar market dynamics. And outside of a, a couple of macro hedge funds, which really were living it up and were shorting the heck out of the market, I think coming into this year, sentiment has been a little bit more muted, particularly in the real money community, because people have taken down so much risk. Everyone was sitting on cash at the higher end of their overall potential allocations. They were in more defensive sectors. They were holding on to quality. And they were kind of in a wait and see mode. As the market has ripped faster than most people would have expected, I think we've seen more people try and scramble. And if there's one thing, Madam, to your question that I'm you know, hearing a lot from the street right now, 
is how many people are buying short dated options, like within the next 24 hour expiry or even within a week. People are terrified of missing moves on the upside or getting caught flat footed and getting killed on the downside after having had decent performance. So there's a lot of like active management in the derivative space. And it's all really short dated as opposed to people saying, hey, I'm buying options to get through the next two CPI prints and into the FOMC just in case I need to hedge myself against some of those macro events that I can't perfectly forecast. So there is a little bit of anxiety around missing out on one way, uh, one direction or another right now. And I, I think you know, that's going to lead to some gyrations that look a little outsized in the near term. That's a really interesting point about the people suffering together. I think uh, the no place to hide is, is an interesting take. All right. So now you got two choices. You can either tell us about one more theme or you can give us something, a theme that you're thinking about, but not yet really putting into place. We'll give you the, uh, the choice to go either way. What's on your brain or what's one more that you're really working on? Well, I think one that we're working on that I, is uh, implemented in parts of the portfolio, but not in all parts of the portfolio right now is around um, automation. You know, we've seen industrial automation do pretty well, some of the big multinationals. But in addition to uh, kind of people's experience during the pandemic, and in addition to the sort of slow bleed move to more automation to increase efficiency, our view of the labor market, as well as some of the policies in specific countries, are, I think, going to accelerate spend in this space. And I see it, you know, with a lot of, I'd say this is true, but for a lot of global themes, a really kind of parallel way to invest. One is maybe an Asia-specific way, and one is more of a global developed market play. So that's a place where we've been doing a bunch of work, and I expect to be really interesting over the coming couple of years, even if uh, some of the companies give more moderate guidance in the next three to six months. How much of a role is China playing in your various themes and allocations? And I say that because, you know, China, particularly as a percentage of the emerging markets, has such a large footprint. You know, a lot of these emerging market funds, 20, 30, 40, 50% plus of EM. Now, as a percentage of the world, it's less, but growing. But damn, China's volatile, man. And I think, uh, you know, a lot of people, particularly in the institutional world, looked at kind of the Russia situation and said, okay, that's scary, but it's sort of a basis point rounding error on kind of what they're doing. But China, you know, the geopolitical side of it could have some pretty massive implications. Are you generally positive or like, how do you think about China as a market in general and playing some of these themes? Is it table stakes where you, you really need to be allocated or are you a little more concerned or something in between? Yeah, I have to say my view on China uh, has really evolved over the last couple of years, I think, like a lot of us. In the beginning of the conversation, we were talking about how I had studied Mandarin and undergrad, did my graduate work on China, and then was like dedicated to emerging markets. In a pre-COVID period, you know, I would be over in China multiple times a year, three, four, sometimes five times a year. I had relationships there. I was meeting not just with companies, with policymakers. I felt like I had my finger on the pulse. And like a lot of U.S. or European investors. My last trip to China was in December of 2019. I feel like it's pretty hard to have an edge just when you're doing Zoom calls, you know, late at night with some of these corporates. So 
my overall allocation to China had come down um, over the course of the pandemic, not just because of the lockdown, not just because of slower economic growth and perhaps some regulatory stuff that was pretty difficult to predict, but more because I just felt like I didn't have an edge. You know, what was my incremental information that was going to help me figure this out? At this point, I do think there are some really interesting opportunities in China. But if, when you think about the rent versus own, I'm still in the rent camp for some of these Chinese-driven themes. So, for example, the reopening, increased travel, increased mobility theme. Very, very interesting. Everything from you know direct travel names and hotel names to you know brands that benefit from discretionary spend when Chinese travelers you know get out of their hometown. And then there's you know, some really interesting plays around less regulatory pressure. We've seen a bunch of the Chinese internet names balance, you know, an enormous size, not just year to date, but really since the reopening started at the end of last year. That's interesting too, but I think we are renting rather than owning until we get a little more clarity and we can get on the ground and really get a, our finger on the pulse. Yeah. Well, I've never been, so let me know when you go. We, uh, I've been to Hong Kong, but I don't think that that uh, that quite counts. Well, you know, look, we've been holding you for a long time, um, and uh, I, what's what's the snow like? By the way, is it do we uh, do we have a decent base there? I know Mammoth is like twice its average snowpack right now. How's Jackson looking? Jackson's uh, doing great. It's actually snowing right now. I'm not sure if you can tell with the whiteout behind me, but it's snowing right now, and. Uh, We've had like uh, almost 370 inches so far this season, considering it's the beginning of February. That's pretty great. There was a, the weekend before last, we had a 48 inch dump in 48 hours. So that was more like snorkeling than skiing, but I wasn't complaining either. Yeah. Let's ask some quicker questions as we start to wind down and we'll let you off into the afternoon or opera or whatever this day may hold for you. I know you are as a sort of, macro world traveler, you tend to have some views that may not be consensus. And we may have touched on some today, but what what view like really sticks out in your brain? And this could apply not just to themes, but just macro or just the world in general that you think most of your peers don't hold. So, you know, 75% plus of your professional peers say, don't share this view. Is there something that comes to mind? Yeah, the immediate thing that comes to mind is that the U.S. economy is going to adjust to higher rates without getting anywhere close to a recession. Some of my economists may call me up after hearing this podcast, but you know, this is something we started talking about at the end of last year. Like, don't bet against U.S. corporate dynamism. Don't ever. I mean, it, this is a lesson we should have all learned over the last ten or fifteen years. Companies will slash costs. They will streamline their operations. They will do what it takes to protect their earnings. And by the way, with the labor market being this tight, you know, consumer incomes look fine. And so it really felt like super out of consensus at the time. It's a little bit less so now, but still out of consensus to say not just that we avoid a recession, but that the earnings story ends up being actually okay this year, that we don't see a lot more cuts because companies adapt and the U.S. economy adjusts to higher policy rates. Yeah, creative destruction of uh, of the capitalist system is is hard to bet against. What um, I don't see any books in your background, but I know you're a big reader. What's on your shelf these days? Anything you think that's been particularly wonderful, or 
that you think isn't something our listeners have heard about? Well, I'm generally like an obsessive sci-fi reader. I actually started that when I was at a University of Virginia taking a class on fantasy and social value. It was like a graduate level sociology class where we read fantasy and sci-fi, analyze the social and political structure. What was the curriculum back then? Was it Dune, Lord of the Rings? That's a, a time machine back, but... Yeah. I mean, I think it was not Dune. It was a lot of like Ursula K. Le Guin. We, ha- we also read like, you know, all the Orson Scott card stuff because all of these social political structures, these, you know, were really different than what we were living. And the question was, why was the author reacting what were they envisioning? Anyway, so I've been, I read a ton of sci-fi and fantasy, and I'd like to take a break. We know we heard Powell yesterday in that Washington Economic Club lunchtime conversation mention he reads spy novels to take a break from markets. So I felt like I was in good company reading fiction. And I, I just finished a book called Wayward, which is the follow-up to Wanderers, a creepy book that came out in 2019, basically predicting a global pandemic um, and the role AI played in it. But I highly recommend. These are great books. I'm also reading a nonfiction book right now, um, Meb, which is Second Mountain by David Brooks. I think this is really important at this point in my life. The idea that, you know, after you accomplish certain things, you have to think about climbing the second mountain, which is around your engagement uh, in society with your community and and how you uh, contribute to the collective. That's two very different books. Wanderers. What was the book you mentioned after Wanderers, the, the sequel? Is wayward. Wayward. Yeah, you should check these out. I mean, they're uh, they're long. They're worth it. I have an enormous number of of, of recommendations if anyone wants uh, like a sci-fi fantasy books. But I would say in the last twelve months, the best book I read was The Invisible Life of Addie Larue by B. E. Schwab. Man, I haven't heard of any of these, and I consider myself a, a Hugo Nebula guy. Like I read a lot in your in your world, and uh, that's. Uh, I was bemoaning last night that I didn't have anything good to read. So you just named three at least. So did you read the three body problem by Shishin Lu? I read the first one a while back. Haven't uh, continued on. Is it worth keeping with two and three? Yeah, I think so. I mean, as you know, there's a lot of physics in there. But one of the things that's so cool, obviously, about the series is it's not just about you know, contact with alien form, but it's a reflection on the decisions people make because of their cultural, political, and and social experience. And um, if you want to really nerd out, I mean, that series is it. So as a macro markets, political background person, let's say tonight you turn on the news, CNN, Fox, MSNBC, wherever you get your news, and they say, we have some breaking news, we've confirmed there's a signal, extraterrestrial intelligent life is clear that it's out there. What do you think the markets do? You think you think they're up, down? <laughs> I mean, I think we see a big rip in the defense and aerospace stocks, because people think there'll be a huge increase in spend. Of course, it's a bit of an irrational response, given how long the lead times are to get equipment. I might book some vacations just in case. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a fun one to think about. We may see in our lifetime. Who knows? As we look out in 2023, is there anything else that's on your brain we didn't talk about today that's really burning a hole in uh, in your temples? I feel like we covered a lot of ground. I do want to hold to that maybe things end up being better than uh, many people had expected, not just the end of last year, but at the beginning of this year. And I'll share with you some, share with you a funny since I sit around a lot of the fixed income people. 
you know, some years ago, someone said to me, you know, fixed income people like to sound smart and equity people like to make money. So, I mean, I think this is not a year to not take risk, but I think you need to be more tactical. You need to play on the dispersion, both within an industry, across industries and across different regions. And I expect it to be really fun. Awesome. Well, that's a positive note to end this. For the, for the people listening, how can they uh, get access to you, consume your thoughts, your research? Is there any, I know a lot of it's behind closed doors. Do you have any public facing uh, stuff that people can access in any way? Well, you know, I do a fair amount of media. Uh, unfortunately, I'm not publishing externally at this point, or maybe fortunately, because I, you know, I spend all my time on the internal uh, side. But yeah, just catch me on Bloomberg, CNBC, Yahoo. Well, listeners, if you're trying to find a job at BlackRock on uh, the global allocation team, my value added suggestion is just to go sit on the chairlifts at Jackson and look for some little red hair peeking out from under the helmet uh, and, uh, and see if you can uh, chat up the, uh, the the political scientist slash macro gal on the on the lift uh, or the tram. I can't. Is Jackson's got a main tram, right? We do have a tram. And I will say, ma'am, like a slight uh, correction, which is that uh, the first thing I do before I put my helmet on is is French braid my hair. I can't imagine having my hair in my face when I ski so fast. That's funny. <laughs> uh, well, I hope to see you out there, Kate. It's been yeah, a blessing. Thanks sure. so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. And I wish you a good rest of the ski season. Podcast listeners will post show notes to today's conversation at mebfaber.com forward slash podcast. If you love the show, if you hate it, shoot us feedback at themebfabershow.com. We love to read the reviews. Please review us on iTunes and subscribe to the show anywhere good podcasts are found. Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing. With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption in logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com slash insights.